listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. i got to tell you something, people. You know, now that we're self-quarantined, everybody's binge-watching TV. Everyone, I mean, me and Joanne have Hulu, Prime, Showtime, all this different stuff. But back in the day when I was younger, there was no binge-watching, okay? It was basically if you sat there and you watched TV, if you missed the show you wanted... You had to wait until the summer when it was summer reruns. And then, of course, we got into VCRs, but no one could figure out how to program them. And that, to me, was one of the golden ages of TV. And it went on for years. And TV's still great, but that meant so much to me, and I watched it as a kid. And my guest today, he was a huge part of that age of TV. He's, he, I'm looking at his resume. He has shows I watch with my parents, and he's just a, a wonderful guy, and he's happily to do my show, and my guest is uh, William Bickley. How you doing, William? Hey, how are you doing? Good. How How do you look at TV now? Like, you come from the old days, the, the cool days, like when it was, if you missed it, you were screwed. Like, what do you think now with all the, all the people being able to watch or whatever? What's your opinion on that? Uh, you mean the, just the different technology, so we don't have to wait for it to be Friday night? Yeah, just the just the availability. I mean, what does it do for you when you think about it? Well, for 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 me, because uh, I used to, uh, uh, of course, I did television before we had VCRs, so we couldn't even tape it or anything. But uh, uh, <clears throat> when we had VCRs back in the uh, I used to uh, uh, tape shows and then study them because I, I wanted to see how, how somebody else did it. And if they did it well, I really wanted to, to, to see everything from just the, the writing, of course, acting, directing, but, but also uh, how their sets were done and how much character there's, you know. Anyway, it, I, I look at all those details. Uh, now, um, Back then, it used to be you knew where a show was. Uh, most of the hit shows that I had were on a, a particular night, of course, and TGIF was on Friday nights, and so Friday nights you knew that's where they were. And it wasn't long after that uh, that uh, you started having to search for, for shows, and the more providers there there uh, uh, have been added to the whole mix, uh, there are some shows I hear people talk about, and they say, "Have you seen it?" And I, my my question is, "Where is it?" Because there's you know 500 plus scripted shows on television now, and I, you can't possibly see them all. So on the one hand, it gives a great variety. Television got really interesting to me. I was got pretty bored with it after my shows went off at the end of the 90s, <laughs> and and then. It, it just seemed lackluster. And then about, I don't know, eight or 10 years later, all of a sudden television got interesting to me again. And I think that's partly because there are so many outlets and there's so many creative things you can do as opposed to just what the network, the major network wants you to do. Now you, you know, you've had a great career, you know, writing comedy. Were you a funny kid or what made you gravitate towards Hollywood and to be a TV writer. Well, <laughs> you know, I, um, I've, I've met a lot of comedy writers because I am one. So uh, I've known a lot of them. Uh, not all of them have great childhoods, and so in a lot of cases, and mine is one. Um, co uh, comedy was a survival technique. Um, you learn to make jokes. And, well, for instance, I had kind of a brutal father. I would make a joke. It's when I was a little kid. I'd make a joke at the dinner table, and he'd knock me out of my chair. And I'd get up and make another joke. So that's how I knew I was destined for this career. Because if you can get actually beaten when you do a joke, you're ready for showbiz. Uh, so I knew I wanted to be a writer by the time I was 11 years old. course i am old enough so that i remember when we got our first television set and i was in in grade school i was in the first or second grade <clears throat> and i envied other kids that had televisions in their house so much 
that I would lie and say I had a television too. And they started testing me. They would say, oh yeah, well, what was on Dragnet or Lucy or whatever the show was. <laughs> and so I started making up stories that I saw the previous night <laughs> on television. And whenever they would say, no, that wasn't what the story was on Dragnet. I would, I would say, and how I came up with this, I have no idea. I would say, well, what makes you think they're all the same stories on every TV? <laughs> on my TV, that's what was on. That's what the story was. And they didn't know how television worked. Nobody did. So that worked for that worked uh, well into the second grade. <laughs> so I never changed my route. There was nothing else I could have done. Now, how did you break into the business? What was your plan? I mean, of course, at 11, you know you want to do it. But none of us at 11 have a plan unless you're some amazing athlete and you go well I'm going to be pro but what was your plan how did you gravitate into the business because I followed you know I looked at your uh, IMDB you started at a young age yeah I was 23 when I sold my first script uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, well it's, it's like you know the saying it's 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 been around a long time uh, you know give God a laugh tell him your plan for the day or for your life well, your plans never actually go the way you plan. It's always a circuitous road. It's a winding road uh, through your entire life, which I think makes it interesting. Uh, all I knew was was because uh, I was hooked on television. I, I just did, I was an athlete and some other I did other things, but I was glued to the television set set when I wasn't doing something else and. Uh, so I knew to go, I knew I had to go to LA. That was one thing, at least geographically, I knew where to go. Uh, and it so happened, I was connected by letter. Um, uh, a, a guy who was a, a comedy writer in the late, in the sixties and, and on, um, had gone to high school in Dallas where I grew up. And there was this English teacher that knew me and told me about this guy who had been her student, uh, who was a, a writer, an actual writer. And so I wrote him a letter he wrote back and we started exchanging letters. He even uh, let me come out to visit him at his house uh, in 68, I think, and stuff. So when I came out to Hollywood, he was a successful writer, but he couldn't just say, here's a script or what, what he could do was uh, there was a show called Love American Stone. And uh, if you know anything about that, it was a, an anthology comedy. Uh, and later, uh, the love boat was patterned after it because the head of uh, Paramount was Douglas Kramer, who also <laughs> came up with uh, Love American Style, pretty much. Uh, and it had four segments in it. It had uh, two 12-minute stories and two eight-minute stories. Well, those were shorter scripts. I got out of the Navy, out of the military, came straight to LA with my military haircut in 1970, which was its own problem. <laughs> and, and my friend said he would tell the producers of this show uh, any stories I came up with. If they liked one, then maybe they would, would have me in for a meeting. Well, they liked the story. Uh, and so I, I went in and because this is all circumstance. You can't plan this sort of thing. The Writers Guild was threatening to strike. I'd been in L.A. all of about a week. <clears throat> the Writers Guild was threatening to strike. When the Writers Guild strikes, writers, uh, producers need to hurry up and get scripts so they can stay into production, even though the writers are striking. So the writers, we've always done this. We help them by writing as many scripts as possible so that when we go out on strike, we can go hungry for months because we've already helped them uh, uh, put us in a jam. Well, so everybody was panicking. So this 23-year-old kid with a military haircut has a story for one of the eight-minute segments of Love American Style. And they figured, well, if he's terrible, we can rewrite it, but we need scripts real fast. That, that really was, there was no other reason for him to let me write the script. So I went in to pitch the story, and the two producers, Billy Idelston and uh, uh, 
forgot the other guy's name. They're both dead. They won't, they won't be mad at me. Uh, and I took a tape recorder because I was so nervous. I couldn't, I couldn't write. I, I couldn't hold the pencil. I got home. The tape recorder hadn't worked. I had no notes, no tape, nothing, which was when I found out that because I listened, I remembered every beat of the story. Fortunately, it was an eight minute story, but uh, I rarely ever took notes after that uh, on anything. They let me write the script. They liked it and had me hired me to write. This was like 10 days. I'd written that script. They were putting it into production. Then they had me write another script. And in those days, uh, staffs were smaller. It was at Paramount. They had a huge uh, number of television shows. And down this one hallway, at the top of the stairs, there was Love American Song. Then about halfway down the hall, there was a, a new show called Barefoot in the Park, which was a black version of the Neil Simon play. They heard about me. And when you were young in 1970, you were a genius if you could write a complete sentence, just about. <laughs> so they hired me to write scripts. And at the end of that hallway was Gary Marshall's office. Now he was overseeing, well, he had the odd couple that started that year. Uh, he was overseeing Barefoot in the Park. So he heard about me, this kid that was doing these scripts and he called me into his office. <laughs> This one particular script for Barefoot in the Park, everybody on the lot, it seemed like, was talking about it because it went straight from my typewriter into production. They didn't even make any changes, and that was really unusual. And so they were saying, I, I was hearing that I was this wonderful writer. Well, Gary took me into his office and explained why my script was okay, but it wasn't wonderful, and began to teach me uh, how to write, and eventually how to produce. And I became, he became my mentor as he was for so many people. And he taught me uh, from then on. And that's why I ended up producing the showrunner, being the showrunner uh, that we call it now, uh, of Happy Days is my association with Gary all those years preceding it. That's why he brought me in to, to be the showrunner for Happy Days. There's a long answer, but it no. covers a lot of history. No, that's what I love. I love the history because, you know, as I said, I look at your, uh, you know, and, and people who don't really know Hollywood don't know the difference between story and screenplay and written by and teleplay. And you have a story in, in All in the Family. How did that come about? Well, the first year I was out here, and I've, I've taught writing classes, and I, before I tell them my story about how I got started... I have to tell them, this is not the way it's going to work for you. This was uh, very unusual. Like I said, I sold the first script within about 10 days. Um, I had an office at Paramount within a month after I, I got arrived in town. And I, did, I wrote 10 scripts that first year for shows. And um, one of them was, again, a struggling new show that nobody thought would work. Uh, they thought that about Happy Days too. And so I, I guess I followed in my career all the shows nobody thought would work. But Norman Lear had, had, had this show. So uh, uh, Gary told him about me. He called me over to, I think it was the, I think it was the 20th Century Fox lot, uh, I think, I could be wrong. Uh, and he had this little office and he showed me this black and white pilot for all in the family. Rob Reiner was not in it yet. Uh, so it was the first of the first pilots for all in the family. It wasn't even called all in the family then. And so we worked out a story and I did the story and uh, my credit on all in the family is Storybot. Uh, uh, they, I guess they didn't trust me at, at that young age to do a script for that show although I did like a 30-page story treatment, which is almost as long as the script was. So a lot of my, a lot of my material was in that, uh, in that final cut of that show. But it, again, uh, All the Family was not a, this legendary show. It, nobody thought that was going to work. And so I, I kept following, uh, going places where they thought they were doomed, and they'd let me in. 
Now, as you're doing these shows, and I know then you went to the Partridge family a few years, you know, yeah. you are you feeling like you're growing as a writer? Because as you said, you came in 10 weeks into the biz. I mean, 10 days into Hollywood, you got a job. And the thing is, it's not like you were versed at writing and you had Gary take you under the wings and stuff like that. But when did you, when did you feel like you were really growing as a writer? Well, you know, usually in retrospect, uh, because in this business, probably like most things, um, you're just trying to survive. You're trying to do the next thing and you're trying to, to write a script and hope they don't hate it. But along the way, by writing, in fact, that's one of the things I tell young writers to do, and it's very common advice, which is if you want to be a, a be, get better as a writer, you need to write a lot. Because when you write a lot, you make a lot of mistakes. And the sooner you can make the, those mistakes and realize what doesn't work and what does work, the faster you're going to grow. So along the way, I, I wasn't aware of, of growing particularly. I was just trying to figure out how to do it. And, uh, and in, in retrospect, I could see um, uh, sort of plateaus where I got a little better. And somewhere, uh, even, even these days, I see a rerun of a show that I produce, so, which meant I had final say. When you show, you're the showrunner, you have final say on everything. So you can't blame somebody else. And I'll see shows that I, I produced 30 years ago. And it's, I can hardly watch them because I see the, the mistakes I made that I wouldn't do that now. I didn't know there were mistakes then. I've apologized to actors for bad notes I've given them uh, uh, 20, 25 years before. I, I've gone up with an actor and said, listen, 25 years ago when you were doing this, it was my mistake. It wasn't you. It was me. Uh, so I think, I think I grew like anybody who loves what they're doing which is you keep wanting to learn more and more about it. You want to do it better. And so you keep, you watch things that are good and you figure out why they're good and, and you try to be, you just, and so mostly it's looking over your shoulder and you realize, oh yeah, I grew during that time. Now you wrote on the first two seasons of Happy Days? I was the showrunner the first two seasons when it was a one camera show. We shot it like a movie. Because American Graffiti was the reason it got on the air. Uh, Gary had made the pilot for Happy Days as a spinoff from Love American Style, uh, I think two years before, maybe one or two years. And uh, then over this over this one summer in 73, um, American Graffiti was this gigantic surprise hit, right? So now all the networks at that time wanted to do a 50 show because it's been a hit. Well, Gary already had this old pilot for happy days so he redid that pilot they reshot it uh they added henry <laughs> henry wasn't in it i don't think no henry wasn't in the original pilot uh, uh, uh tom bosley wasn't in the original pilot <clears throat> and so he did a redo a new version of happy days uh, and uh, uh and what the network wanted the studio wanted in network uh, they wanted us to shoot American Graffiti, uh, uh, do one every four days, <laughs> which was it's very hard. Uh, so we were shooting at night and, and all that stuff. So that's why the first 30, 39 episodes, I think, were shot uh, movie style, one camera. So that was when I was the showrunner was when it was the one camera. When it switched up to an audience show, multicam audience show, I'd never done an audience show. I'd only done one-camera comedies. Uh, so uh, Gary brought in uh, uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel. I mean, not Babalu wasn't his partner then. Mark Rothman was his partner. But, of course, Lowell and, and his partner later, Babalu, wrote uh, Parenthood and all these great movies that Ron Howard has done. Uh, but so it was the first two seasons that I was the showrunner. Then I came back. I don't know, four or five, maybe six different years, Gary would come and say, this is the last year of the show. You should come back and just consult and, and, and it'll be over. But it was never over. <laughs> and, and so I would come back. He made a deal with, 
we didn't want to work. Our kids were little. And so we made what uh, for a while was a somewhat well-known deal called the six o'clock deal. At six o'clock, I went home to my kids and uh, no matter what was happening. So that was a pretty good situation. So I was back and forth on the show, but the first two seasons were the show running seasons. Okay, I have a question for you because I'm, I'm, I'm a TV nerd. First of all, what happened to Chuck Cunningham? <laughs> I love this. Uh, well, it wasn't real well thought out. Um, <laughs> we were shooting pretty fast those days. The first season, oh shoot, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Um, the guy that played Chuck, very good actor, and later did a lot of very good drama and stuff. Um, but superb actor. Uh, he was discontent after the first season that he, as I recall, um, uh, didn't, his character wasn't doing enough and stuff. Uh, so there was an impasse. And so he quit the show. And so we cast another actor to play Chuck in the second season. <laughs> and then after, then after, after the second season, we realized, well, reason we can't work Chuck in the stories is we don't need him <laughs> and it was it was kind of like a piece of furniture that you've kept because you always loved it but it doesn't really fit in the room and it wasn't the actor's fault the actor was was doing just fine so there was this discussion uh, and I didn't Gary Marshall had to say not me not me uh, as he should have um, should we explain whatever happened to Chuck. So Gary said, no, he just goes off to college and, and, and Cunningham's will get a postcard now and then saying he's fine. And then, so the audience will forget about him. Well, the audience never forgot about him. And in, in the audience show, when we did question and answer after the, after the show, when it was an audience show, inevitably somebody would say, what happened to Chuck? And so the, the final episode, cause I was back on the show again, <clears throat> the final season and we, we were talking about what should the final episode be which is, is there will almost never an outcome when you're talking about the final episode you can never agree on anything well my suggestion was because <coughs> it was about Joni and Chachi getting married <coughs> it was going to end with a wedding <coughs> comedy writers are very cynical so it's end with a wedding oh god <coughs> so I suggested well they all, the Cunninghams and everybody leave the house. The wedding's in the backyard. They go out to the backyard where the wedding's happening, and you hear this basketball dribbling down the stairs. And down the stairs come Chuck, the original Chuck, and says, where'd everybody go? I thought that would be hilarious. Uh, they, uh, Gary didn't take my suggestion, but I know what my ending See, I've always wondered what happened to Chuck, and now I got that answer. And, it, and it's it's happened, you know, it's it's happened on many shows where a cast, a, a character is recast, or a character is, is it just goes missing. Now, the other Happy Days question I have for you, because this was an early on, is, and I don't know what season it was, but early on in the first season, Fonzie wore a blue jacket, and then yeah. he turned to a leather jacket. Was there a certain? thing where wardrobe said there was a war that's a certain thing the first season and again we were shooting really fast we were under budget and we were and uh, i know when we started shooting gary called me up i was producing the partridge family and i had a deal i couldn't get out of that deal and gary said he wanted me to produce uh, happy days and i said i can't i'm under contract to a different company i'm doing a different show and so he called the head of the network and got me out of it somehow. So he calls me up on Thanksgiving weekend. I'm somewhere. I don't, not at home. I'm traveling somewhere. He calls me and says, we start shooting on Monday. Come on over. I got you out of the deal. And when we, the first day of shooting on happy days, we didn't even have the phones connected in the offices. We were boom. We were just, we were shooting. And uh, um, uh, so the network never understood Fonzie I mean, in the beginning. 
So there were two big issues <clears throat> that fell to a 26-year-old showrunner. It's the first show I'd ever completely been, I mean, been on the line for. <clears throat> and I'm supposed to run this show. Gary's busy with the odd couple because <clears throat> they're getting nominated for Emmys. <clears throat> so I'm left alone for this show nobody would thought would work anyway. <clears throat> and so I had to take the network fight. So the network would say, uh, uh, first of all, Fonzie can't have the duck's ass, the DA haircut, the long hair with it what we used to call a ducktail or a deer at the back. He's got to have short hair like the other guys. Well, we knew that we didn't want to do that. So I would say, remember, it's a one-camera show, so we're shooting each day. And then we used to watch the dailies, the previous day shooting, the following day. We'd watch it in a theater. It was not television and tape and and that technology we would watch uh, the dailies in a in a theater at paramount and the network would come to see the dailies every day <clears throat> so they'd come to see the sh- what we shot of the show we just started the previous day and they would say he was supposed to get a haircut <clears throat> and i would say oh no i forgot but now it won't match if he gets a haircut so we got a <laughs> Excuse me, I'm choking on the past. Um, the, but we still so we got to have him. We can't cut his hair until next episode, next week. <clears throat> then I would do the same trick the next week. Oh no, I forgot. <laughs> that worked about that. I worked for four, five, six weeks. This it was the same with the leather jacket. <clears throat> they would say, no, he's supposed to wear a windbreaker. And there were some episodes where he wore the windbreaker. But we didn't want to do that. So we would sneak the leather jacket back in. And I did the same thing. Uh, we kept calling Gary and saying, I don't know how long this trick can can survive. <clears throat> hey, he's in the leather jacket. And I would say, oh, no. Oh, I forgot. And so finally, when the excuses were, were running out of gas. <clears throat> now, there are two different stories. <clears throat> there's mine and there's Gary's. <clears throat> What Gary has written in a couple of books is that um, he persuaded the network that for safety reasons, Fonzie needed to wear the leather jacket because he's riding a motorcycle and it's dangerous. <laughs> so that, that's what Gary said. That was not what Gary told me back then. And what he told me back then, and I don't think he would have lied. What was the point of lying to me? I'm 26 years old. I don't know what I'm doing. And I still have to do it anyway. Why lie to a kid? <laughs> he told me that uh, Barry Diller was the head of ABC that, that year. Michael Eisner was the second in charge. They would always come and complain. <clears throat> and he said that he, he took the script and went behind Barry Diller's desk and pointed to the stage direction that described Fonzie as, um, I forgot what we called him back in, as a, uh, not a hoodlum, but uh, some other term, uh, that that was what the ca- character was intended to be. He wasn't one of the boys. And for some reason, then Diller said, oh, okay. <laughs> so from then on, he could, the hair and the jacket were okay. But it was, it was we're shutting you down level problem. For the, the first year, we did 16 episodes starting, starting in uh, December Early, the first week of December of 1973 was when we started shooting. And we did 16 episodes. We were mid-season replacement show. We did 16 episodes. And that whole 16 episodes, uh, there were fights uh, over the hair and the jacket. And then it was one. You, you know, it's I'm fun. sorry. I only have long answers because I covered a lot of oh, No, it's great. No, I'm just thinking because, you know, you're, you look at your career. And I said you've worked on so many shows. And you've also written, like, you wrote uh, uh scripts for a welcome back Cotter, but then you also worked on a what's happening. What was it like then? Because there wasn't, it's not like white people weren't used to seeing African-Americans on TV that much. What was it like when you took that job or did you sit there and think, you know, would people accept it? Because it was different times than it is now. Well, you're hitting some very pertinent issues uh, to what my career was. Um, I grew up in the deep South, 
Southern Arkansas and then uh, Texas. I am as white as you can be, although in my in my lineage, according to uh, 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 whatever that what's that thing would you dig into the past? I did the DNA thing, and I do have three or four percent African, so <laughs> I feel exonerated. <clears throat> but um, the first full length full length meaning half hour script I wrote was for Bear from the Park, which was an all black show. I was a um, producer writer on Room 222, which was a partially black show. Uh, and then, of course, it eventually, uh, what's happening, like you're saying, and then created all of uh, uh, Family Matters. Well, what's this Southern kid doing uh, producing these these black shows? And at press conferences, they would ask me that and I'd say, I don't know. Um, it's sort of like been my fate and I have a friend, uh, Patrick Duffy, who's, who's a Buddhist, and he's, he's, he's introduced the idea that I'm burning karma for my ancestors. And I actually believe that. Uh, I've got some payback to do on behalf of my family from, for the last couple of centuries. Uh, so uh, when I've, Every time I, I did a show that was either partially or predominantly African-American, I always felt a tremendous obligation because I, I don't want to do my version of what I think it is to be black in America. That's, I'd, I'd rather not do it at all. And so I, I used to talk to the cast members and other writers and people about well, what's true here. In your experience, the way you experience life in America, because we all have a lot of similarities, of course, we, we, we are human beings, and so we have those things in common, but then there's this other thing that I know nothing about from that their side. So I would always solicit what their experience was and try as best I could to, um, to write with that in mind and try to tell the truth as best as I could manage to do it. So with what's happening, uh, now that, you know, uh, Bud Yorkin and, uh, oh shoot, I've forgotten the two guys that were they're actual writers they, that are executive producers, but they're all white and Jewish and, you know, um, but, the, but uh, at that point, and it, that, that show was a, it was kind of an untenable show, but, uh, uh, but the cat, the cast would tell you. And, and so if you listen, uh, you, maybe you don't make so many mistakes dealing with that. I, I thought the, the, I loved, I always enjoyed the, enjoyed the cast of that show very much. We tried to quit my partner and I, <coughs> excuse me. We tried to quit the show almost right away because we didn't like where the stories were going and we thought they should get somebody else. Uh, and they refused to do that. Um, but we we did leave the show before the first season was over. So what was it like then? You know, you're going from different shows to different shows. You Now, when did you start to decide to creating TV shows? I know, was that when, were you writing on Perfect Strangers? Is that what happened when you got to create, uh, started creating your series of shows? Or how did you go from a guy who was producing and writing to a show creator. You already were a showrunner, so you had that part under you. You've done everything. What, what made you decide to create a show, or did the network come and say to you, hey, here's some money. Create a show. <laughs> money money is good. Um, well, there were two things I learned quickly when I came out here. <laughs> and of course, in those days, the, the, we didn't have YouTube and all the stuff that would tell us what Hollywood was really like, so you pretty much had to learn from experience who did what and what it meant. I came out here thinking that um, uh, a, a writer, uh, write, all the words were written by the writer. Well, I found out quickly, no, if it's a movie, uh, the director's gonna have the final say. And if it's television, the producer, or what we call now the showrunner, it's his medium. He has the final say over everything. In writing, set, casting, everything. Uh, so I learned very quickly that if I, that writing television wasn't just writing to really make that thing that you imagine happen 
on the television screen, you had to be the showrunner. Now, we just called it producer back then. But you had to be the showrunner in order to, to get what's in your head actually onto the screen. So we all learned that real quick. And you know, a lot of writers realize they don't want that job because it's a high-pressure, high-stress job. I liked it. I liked pressure. But so I was suited for it. But um, but you want the next thing you learn is <clears throat> if you want to make the real money, you you have to create a show. And of course, that's what I wanted to do anyway because I was always thinking of stories that I think thought would be funny. So from the get go, I did a pilot. My first pilot, maybe the second year I was I was out here, it, it didn't go anywhere. So I did a few pilots that didn't go anywhere. Um, I think the first show I got on the air um, was probably 78. 78, uh, we got two shows on the air at the same time. Uh, Waverly Wonders, uh, starring, which we wrote for Judd Hirsch and ended up uh, starring Joe Namath, who was a charming fellow and he tried hard. Um, but it wasn't Judd Hirsch. Uh, and the other show was one we did uh, with a very good cast uh, that uh, we did on Off Network, which was unusual in those days. So I, I had created shows that got on the air uh, by 78. Uh, so uh, you were always trying to create your own show. I guess the goal is to have your own show. So we did that. <laughs> what was your process for creating Family Matters? What did you base it on someone you knew? Did you base, I mean, because, you know, and, and when did Urkel become so, I mean, Urkel just stole the show. I was talking to um, someone who, uh, who said Urkel was just ended up, uh, Joel Zwick said he directed it and Urkel just started becoming this huge thing. But what was the, yeah. what was your original concept for Family Matters? Well, and by the way, uh, Joel Zwick says hi. He says he's still one of my closest friends uh, and a terrific director. Um, you know, when you get one show in the air, and and we didn't create Perfect Strangers, but but we were running it from uh, pretty much the beginning. Uh, we didn't do the pilot, but uh, so that was... Uh, full-time our focus <clears throat> and uh, then uh, when you get one show in the air when that that effectively was was like to the network we had a show um, and Miller Boyette were exec producers uh, uh, and uh, they weren't writers but uh, they were great executives in terms of the business and the stuff but um, so the network wanted us to do another show uh and they they i and i can't remember the order of events that they said they wanted a a, a, a black family show or what I, I don't remember if that came first but then uh, beverly hills cop came out and was a hit well uh reginald bell johnson was a standout character in Beverly Hills Cop. He played the patrolman on the ground that was rooting for him and trying to help uh, <coughs> you know, save the day. So he was a standout character. Well, I think Tom or somebody said, hey, how about uh, Reggie Bell Johnson uh, from that movie? And we said, okay, yeah, sure. And uh, um, then we thought, well, way to do a cheap pilot, which is we had done before on other shows, uh, which was due to an episode of Perfect Strangers, and we, it's called a spinoff, uh, where we would, would bring in characters. This is how Mork and Mindy got created and, and some other, Laverne and Shirley. Uh, bring them in for an episode of Perfect Strangers and demonstrate what a show with, with him would be like. So we, we designed a, a, a black family and I can do family. I know relationships and the ins and outs and the goods and bads of that. <clears throat> but I, and so I just treated it like, okay, here's a family, whether they're black or not, that, that will remain uh, the detail in the details. And we had, we got Reggie and we had uh, Joe Marie 
uh, Peyton France, he changed the name a few times, um, uh, already was a, a, a minor character, but a continuing character on Perfect Strangers. So we said, let's do an episode of Perfect Strangers where we see the two of them as a couple, and that'll, we just use that as a demo to the network for Family Matters. And <clears throat> so it, it was the basis for doing the pilot was Reggie Bell Johnson. Um, uh, and uh, the network liked it. And uh, so we, we, we did, the, did the show. And then Urkel was not on the show in the beginning. Uh, then about halfway through a television season, now uh, we learned how to avoid this, this pit of producing. Uh, about halfway through a television season, you tend to run out of scripts. And then you're fighting for your life for the second half of the season. We, <clears throat> halfway through the first season of Family Matters, there came the day where we didn't have a, ship, a script to shoot the next week which is uh, not a good place to be. So we said, okay, let's just write a script over the weekend. And we remembered a pilot that we had done. I hope, I've said this before in interviews and I hope that NBC doesn't ever sue me for it, but um, we had written a pilot that did not sell some years before. That was about a family. And in, the, in this script, the father was worried that his adolescent daughter wasn't gonna, it was the first uh, boy-ass girl party in in the junior high or whatever it was. And the father was worried that his daughter, no, no boy would ask his daughter out. So he goes around her back and, and gets a boy, uh, make, gets a date for her and unwittingly picks the worst date he could possibly have chosen. That, that's just, that's comedy, right? Um, so we converted, took that, we didn't use the exact script, but we took that idea and, but we kept the, the character, the character had was Urkel that was in that original script. And we kept that character pretty much, it's pretty much the same. It changes though when, when you write, but, and so it was never intended to be more than just the hurry up script. And Steve Urkel was in maybe three scenes. I'm not, I'm not sure, but not, not a lot. Um, but the, um, and, and we had two shows on the air at that time. We had Perfect Strangers and Family Matters. So we were going back and forth. And so we weren't at the casting session for, uh, that Jaleel White came to and got the part. We didn't see him until the cast reading. So we sit down in this conference room to have the regular cast reading, which we did on Monday. Uh, and this kid opens his mouth and just knocks us out of our chairs. He's so amazing. So immediately we gathered in the corner um, and, um, and said, we got to, we need to make this kid a regular. He's amazing. And that's how Urkel ended up being added to the, to that mix. It was pure kismet or magic or thank you, God. It's the same thing happened with Fonzie who was supposed to be a minor character, of course. So it, it happens every once in a while, and they called it, they called it back then, a breakout character. Uh, later on, the network started saying, about every new show, where's the breakout character? We <laughs> can try to convince them. It's, you don't plan it. It's, a, it's an accident. Fonzie was an accident. You know, Urkel was an accident, you know, and so forth. But that's how Steve Urkel came on the show. Well, now you said you were also working on Perfect Strangers. How are you balancing that out doing two shows? Because, you know, were you not there for the live shootings or did they shoot different days? Or how does it work when you're working on two shows? Well, I had enough experience by then to be able to, to tell, now we, uh, to, to know what were the most important phases of a script production and so forth that you go through to know where it was the most important to make sure it was okay. Um, it's just, it's just from experience. Um, and so my partner and I, we just said, well, we'll shoot them on different days of the week. So uh, the uh, 
what we call run-throughs, rehearsals, run different days, and the cast reading will juggle. So we staggered the production cycles of them so that we could be uh, present at all the most important parts. <clears throat> and uh, like I said, I, I actually, the, the pressure of being a showrunner actually suits me. I'm, I've been, I'm an ADD, so the more I have coming at me, the clearer my, my brain works. So it actually was more relaxing to have two shows. And then we did the same thing with three and then four, the fourth show too later on. And that was a juggling act. But uh, uh, experience sort of teaches you what's important. Also, I had learned uh, years ago talking with Ron Howard. Ron and I, during the, the year that he, right before he left Happy Days, uh, we would sit and he would say, you know, we don't really need five days to shoot that show. We pretty much waste the entire day. If we just went there and rehearsed, we could shoot it in three days. And I would say, you know, if we brought the writers in early in the morning, like it was a real job and actually worked all day and treated it like it's a real job, we could, we don't need that much time either. <clears throat> so we put the, that that experience to work doing multiple shows and it, it worked out. It was also more fun. Now, how long were you, were you on Family Matters the whole time? Well, I created it. I was executive producer the, the whole time, yeah. Now, did you have your hands in the stories and the stories development? Because it ran for a long time. And as you said, if you're running out of a story halfway through a season sometimes, how do you plan? And as these people start growing up and changing, I mean, how do you deal with that? Well, first of all, let me say <clears throat> what we knew we had to do was hire, uh, have a, a, a designated showrunner for each series. Now, we could, we, we still had the final say, but we needed a guy uh, who was a showrunner on each show uh, all the time specifically. So we knew that. <clears throat> and we we're fortunate to have uh, Dave Duplon uh, come into to, uh, uh, Family Matters, I think in the second season, I'm not sure. <clears throat> and, uh, and he was terrific. So that took a lot of the load off and, and he loved the show and he had a different view of the show than I did. And it was fine with me. There were certain things about the show I needed to, to maintain, but he, he also wanted to take it in a more fanciful direction, which, which we let him do. And he did great. And then we had, uh, on one was step-by-step, we had a showrunner and on, <clears throat> on perfect strangers, we had that not such a, not, not a very good showrunner, unfortunately. So we we tended to spend more time with that show. Um, um, but you know, you figure it out as you go along. And, and but we also knew we had figured out by then why do you get behind? Well, you get behind on scripts because you don't just sit down and say, okay, in story number one, it's going to shoot six weeks after we break the story, it's going to shoot six weeks later. Story number two then has to be in by a certain day. And we would make tables for these showrunners saying, you have to stay at story number four has to be done by this date or you're behind. So we started predicting. So then we would know when we were behind six weeks before a lot of producers tend to know they're behind. So we, and we insisted on it it being that methodical and you work like it's a real job. <laughs> how did, um, who, how did the idea come up for step by step? And did you have those two actors who there are so, there are such big names. Were they in from the gecko or did you develop it for them or how did that happen? Well, and like I, I think I said earlier, when you have one show on the air, it's easier to get two. And then when you have two, it's easier to get three. <clears throat> um, uh, we decided, and I say we, I mean uh, Miller and Bordiette and Michael Warren, who was my partner and, and myself, decided, okay, we, we want to do a blended family, uh, and which has been done. Brady Bunch was a blended family, but it's hardly the first uh, for any of us. We wanted to do a unique, uh, something a little unique, a blended family where, where the 
father and, and, and mother, the, they're really hot for each other. And if, if they were 20 years old, it would be one thing, but they're not. They, have, they each have kids, so a family has to come together, even though they're, they act like teenagers with each other. <clears throat> so we wrote the script and everything. We had to go ahead for the pilot. We were going to shoot the pilot. It came to casting, and um, now <clears throat> Suzanne Summers had just finished doing a show at uh, where were we? We were at uh, uh, Lorimar, which was uh, basically uh, Warner Brothers, <clears throat> and she had just finished doing a series that had been canceled. So we knew she was available, and then Patrick Duffy Dallas had just ended, and so Patrick. Patrick Dallas was on the same lot we were on too. <clears throat> so uh, we said, well, both of those have shows that are ending right now. Now, <clears throat> Suzanne already knew what to expect from Suzanne, so that I didn't rebel at that. Um, <clears throat> but Patrick, I had only seen in Dallas. Now, bear in mind, Patrick is, is one of my very closest friends today. I just, we were just texting each other before we, we did this. So we became really close friends, but they said, Patrick Duffy. And I said, uh, he's not funny. And uh, he said, I've said this to him. I've said this publicly too, in front of him. He's not funny. And they said, well, he's a big star. I said, but he's not funny. And uh, so somebody had the smarts to give me uh, a gag reel from uh, uh, one of the years of Dallas. And of course, the gag reel is not just when they make mistakes, but actors tend to do things for the gag reel, play tricks on each other and stuff like that. So we looked at the, this gag reel from Dallas, and Patrick is hilarious. <laughs> Breaking, you know, he wasn't playing the Dallas jaw clincher serious thing. He was just being himself and just just goofy as, as he could be. And then, then we met with him. And he was hilarious in the room. We just all had a great time. And so then uh, then I stopped resisting Patrick Duffy <laughs> and said, oh, okay. And, uh, and, and of course, then it was, it, he was terrific. It was one of my favorite work experiences ever. And then, like I say, we're still, we're very close friends. And it, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Now, when you, when the show came on, because I was thinking the same thing when you said about Patrick, because you think of him about Dallas, you don't think of him as, as funny. Do you think, did it take for a while, do you think, for people to warm up? Because Dallas fans are like soap opera fans. They're they're fanatical. Like, I mean, I've had soap opera people on here, and oh my God, all every 75-year-old, 80-year-old ladies tweeting, oh, you know, pen whatever, and all this stuff. What, how did you, sit, did you, did you feel like you had to, even though you knew he was funny, did you have to sit there and try to really give him some good material just so people would all of a sudden say, oh, he's he's not a Ewing anymore. He's actually funny. Yeah, you know, and this, I don't recommend this to uh, young comedy writers and producers, but I almost never think that, uh, of what will make a show work. I mean, make it successful. I almost... I, I, about the only thing I can ever think of is whether I would enjoy it. Uh, so uh, now that you mentioned that's a, that's scary. <laughs> if I'd thought of that, I would have been scared. Uh, but no, we, I don't remember ever discussing, well, they, they, they expect him to be this. And on our show, he's going to, he's not going to be that at all, but that, that could, that could have been a danger. I guess we just never thought of it, <laughs> but you're right. It it would be a big switch for the Dallas uh, audience to then uh, uh, ex accept him as as this uh, kind of kind of a goofy, funny, uh, you know, guy on this sitcom. Uh, it was a big switch, but I guess it worked out. Well, you know, but now that you mentioned, I'm going to lose sleep tonight yeah. worrying about the past. <laughs> Both shows a, ran for a long time. Step by Step and Family Matters both ran for a long time. Was it your decision for both shows to pull the plug, or was it the network? Wait, wait. Or I missed the words one. Uh, step by Step and uh, Family Matters both ran for a bunch of seasons. Yeah. Was it your decision or the network's decision 
to decide to end the shows? Well, it's <laughs> it's rarely uh, our decision to, to end the show. Usually, <clears throat> most often, you find out your show's been canceled by reading in the trade papers. <laughs> Communication is not big in Hollywood. Um, uh, it, you know, shows like MASH, uh, Seinfeld, they are uh, successful enough and smart enough to choose uh, their own their own death, as it were. Um, that's almost never the case. And it, it wasn't really the case. Uh, it was the case for Happy Days because we knew the show was not going to be picked up for the following year. So the network basically said, you're going to be doing your last episode. So that's why it had a last episode with, with, uh, with, now we, we, we knew the, uh, step-by-step in family matters kind of, I think we knew that, that that would be the last season because they did pretty much, uh, uh, petered out by, by then we, uh, so we pretty much knew that, but they ended up pulling us, uh, shutting down production, uh, two or three episodes before we got to the finish. So we didn't have a chance to do a, a final episode. And it's just, that's more often the case in, in television. You, you get canceled and uh, everybody goes home. Um, so it's not often you get the chance to do a final episode. Uh, if, you're, if you're still a big hit, you get to make that choice yourself. But it, it, when you just decline and they get canceled, uh, that's, you almost never have the opportunity. Well, after those shows, I well, you know, I always hate when they, they never tell you what's going to happen. Like, you see the end of the series, and they're like, the cop's chasing somebody, and all of a sudden the show's done, and you never know if the shop, the cop got, got the guy, and then you get pissed off, and you want to sit there and write to the showrunner and say, what would have happened? But now, after those shows, you were so busy. We're the only people that can tell you. So. <laughs> now, now, did you retire after those shows ended? Because you no, really haven't worked no, a lot. I just don't have a show on here. Uh, no, I, I often respond by saying writers never retire. Uh, <clears throat> we just keep on not dying. Um, no, I, I, like I said, I, I think I said earlier, um, I was a little burned out after all the shows. I didn't, as a writer, director, producer, some combination of that, I had done like. Uh, I think around 2000 episodes of television by the end of the nineties. Uh, so I was, I was a little tired of the form itself. Uh, and what I was seeing coming on the air were shows that didn't, I didn't find interesting. <clears throat> so I, I did some other stuff uh, and I've, I've written a, a, a mini series of limited series and, and I've, I've got a show that I'm, taking to Netflix uh, in a week or two or something like that uh, starting Gladys Knight so I'm, I'm never I'll never retire they just may not let me uh, on the studio a lot but that's that's happened many times well no because no what I was thinking though is because as you look at it as you just said you know you did over 2,000 episodes and you figure you started like in in 1970 and you went through 2000 I mean that's 30 years I mean most people could only wish to do a job they love for 30 years. And that's yeah. what's cool, because after a while, it's like, it must be like, I mean, what did you do when you finally didn't have all these shows running? How did you spend your time? You must have gone crazy that first six months going, wait a second, I, I, don't, I don't have to do anything. It, it was a, it, I will say, uh, it was a good thing, because I needed to attend to uh, my life <laughs> and sort of get that in order. Uh, then and I was burned down enough so that uh, the idea of doing another uh, uh, situation comedy or uh, that I did not want to do another family show and stuff like that. Although I, I was for the first time grateful that that's what I had done with my career. Um, uh, but I was in need of uh, of, of turning to other things on the spiritual level and. I needed to sit down and say, okay, 
uh, who I am, who am I? Uh, it, you'd be a, a surprised, I, I think, that uh, the ego that we have, because um, we have four shows on the air for over the course of a 10, 12 years. At any given time, we had four network shows at the same time. Well, two of them went off the air at some point uh, before Step by Step and uh, Family Matters did. And I realized when somebody said, well, what do you, what do, you do? And, I, and I, my answer had always been, well, I have four television shows in here. And I had to say, well, I have two. And I realized, holy crap, my ego was really bound up in saying, I have four shows on television. I hadn't even realized that. And now I had to say, I'm a failure. I only have two shows on television. And I thought, this is, this is not good. Um, so when the when the show finally went off the air, I had to do some uh, thinking about uh, life and the, the meaning of existence and relationship and stuff. Now I'm very happily married uh, to, by the way, to one of the stars of Perfect Strangers, uh, not Martha Baker or Bronson Pinchot, one of the, one of the ladies, uh, Melanie Wilson. And uh, so I, I needed to get to, I needed to do for my life what I had done. Uh, I don't for television. That sounds like I did him a favor, but uh, I needed to focus on some other things and then come back to writing, which I did. One final question. If you're flipping around the channels and one of your so shows channels, and one of your shows comes on, do you want, do you ever just sit and watch it? Earlier you said you look at it and you apologize to actors, but do you ever sit there and say, I'm, I'm going to sit down and watch this just to see my early career compared to my later career? For a while, I didn't. I mean, even as to, as it was going, but but the time a show uh, this is when you're actually doing an active series. But the time an episode gets on the air, you know, I've seen uh, and been involved with uh, many drafts of the script, uh, uh, at least a week of, of rehearsals and changes and rewrites and and stuff, and then. Uh, several cuts in the, of the editing and then the final mix. And I've seen the show a lot of times. So by the time it gets on the air, it's sort of lost its luster, you know? And that, and I, in the beginning, I was just enraptured at the idea of seeing uh, something I'd written on the air and seeing my name. Uh, but you, you kind of get over that. Um, and then, you know, it was when I, I started teaching a, a writing class um, to college-age kids. Uh, I think I started in 1910. <laughs> 2010, I'm not quite that old. And some of them were fans of, of my old shows, and I, which I found strange. I, I said, you're strange. All of you, you're sick children. Um, but then they made me watch some episodes, especially of Perfect Strangers and stuff. So, and I, f I found I was surprised because I, I always was resistant because how critical I am watching my own work. And I was surprised that, especially with Perfect Strangers uh, and with Happy Days, uh, well, I don't know, there's two, but that, oh, it wasn't, it wasn't so bad. You know, oh, I'm actually laughing. Now, there was a time in the years before that I'd done so much television my kids were growing up, I'd walk through the living room, my kids would be watching an episode and they would say, hey dad, you wrote this. And I would look at the screen and I would think, I have no memory of that whatsoever. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen next in this story. I know I wrote it, but I don't, I, you know, because they, then they were all sort of jammed together. It's, if it's a show I produced, I, I don't remember all of them, but uh, some of them. You know what you you do? You remember more, when you're watching one of those shows, you remember more of where you were at the time you shot it or what was going on on the set or what was going on in your life. It's like going back, back and looking at old photographs where it's not just a photograph. It brings back uh, the memory of a time in your life and stuff like that. So all that's connected. It's much easier to watch uh, reruns of Seinfeld. 
Exactly. Well, William, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to come on today. People, just go to INDB, look up William Bickley, and just look at all the shows he's uh, been involved with, and watch them. You know, now you can watch anything, anytime. I mean, it's unbelievable. Between all these different networks, you know, I always laugh at people that, you know, we have all these networks, but I swear to God, my wife only watches MSNBC, Hallmark Channel, and Discovery ID. The weirdest, the weirdest mix of TV ever. But so people, check out William. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. Uh, follow me on Twitter at coopertalk. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.